Listener Production. So in this episode of The Briefing, Rihanna Patrick, we're talking about 13 Yarn, which is a lifeline service specifically for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Yeah, and it's been something that we've needed for a while. And while there have been other state-based helplines, it's the first time that there has been a national one available and also a world first. Amazing. So we'll find out all about it. We're going to speak to the woman who designed it, Marjorie Anderson. Having Aboriginal people on the other end of the line that understand you and understand your culture and understand the intergenerational trauma that you've suffered really helps Aboriginal people reach out to a line that is for them. One Three Yarn, more on that in the second half of this episode. First, today's headlines. It is Thursday, July 7. Anyone over 30 could soon get a fourth COVID shot with the Prime Minister tipping the change in our vaccine strategy. We will inevitably uh, follow uh, what has occurred in in other parts of the world and and rolled out a further booster shot. So ATAGI is set to officially announce its recommendations tomorrow, but it's being reported that over 50s will be recommended to get the fourth shot while it will be made available to anyone over 30. Yeah, and this follows a meeting of the vaccine regulator yesterday afternoon. Currently only people over 65 or particularly vulnerable people can get a fourth shot, but more than 40% of people 65 and over are yet to get their fourth dose, while about 30% of eligible adults are yet to receive their third dose. Yeah, so the tank-up of the third and fourth dose has been a lot slower than the first two. The message, I guess, still getting out how important that is, and I guess they're also pushing through a bit of vaccine fatigue as well. But I think a lot of people are starting to focus again on the COVID situation as the numbers start to go through the roof again with this third wave. And I guess the message here is that if you're in those older age groups, that you are more at risk. And the Prime Minister has visited the flood-ravaged parts of New South Wales. And while he was there, he had to defend his trip to Ukraine during the flood crisis, answering critics who compared his trip to Scott Morrison's Hawaiian holiday during the Black Summer bushfires. I was fulfilling a responsibility that I believe that I had uh, of travelling to Ukraine. To compare that with a holiday is, I just find, beyond contempt. During this visit, he announced fresh disaster payments, uh, $1,000 per adult and $400 per child who have suffered loss or damage in the 23 affected local government areas. Yeah, it was interesting him being asked to sort of defend his trip and compare it to Scott Morrison. Like Anthony Albanese was literally in a war zone, um, which is obviously nothing like chilling in Hawaii. Before that, he was fixing our relationship in France and before that, he was at NATO. So... Uh, He was pretty busy, and as soon as he got back in, he did a presser in Perth, then flew over, and when he woke up the next day, went straight to the floods. Uh, Another key difference was the way he talked about climate change. Um, You might remember at the start of the Black Saturday bushfires, the reason Scott Morrison was on the back foot was he got asked so many times, is this anything to do with climate change, and he just wouldn't go there, whereas yesterday, Anthony Albanese went straight to climate change and cited it as a key factor in the recent floods. The science told us that if we continued uh, to not take action globally on climate change, uh, then these events, extreme weather events, would be more often and more intense. And what we're seeing, unfortunately, is, is that play out. 
This comes as rain finally starts to subside today and 29,000 people in southwest Sydney have been told they can return home. The east coast low behind the Sydney floods is moving north with rivers in the New South Wales Hunter region now under major flood warnings. Yeah, and overnight the SES is still carrying out rescues. They rescued um, 60 groups while 70 evacuation orders are still in place. got a level of comfort that we've got it mostly under control at this point. Moving forward, obviously, the catchment is so saturated, there's not much capacity to take any sort of further large rainfall. Thankfully, the weather is on the improve. David Goldfinch there from the SES and the Bureau of Meteorology says the weather system currently near Port Macquarie will move further off the east coast, bringing more stable winds and hopefully drier conditions today. Yeah, thank goodness. It has been an absolute hell of a week in New South Wales with all this rain and each day you think it's going to back off and it doesn't, but finally it appears today will be the day that it does. And as someone who went through floods in southeast Queensland, I am feeling for New South Wales at the Mm. moment. And the 12 members of the Toowoomba religious group charged with the murder of an eight-year-old girl faced court yesterday and were refused bail. Yeah, Elizabeth Strews was found dead in January after the group allegedly denied her medical treatment for her diabetes condition. And in Toowoomba Magistrates Court yesterday, each of the 12 members who were charged appeared without legal representation and the case will be adjourned until September, which means they'll be in custody for at least two months unless they appeal to the Supreme Court. Nick Kyrgios has made it through to his first ever Grand Slam semi-final. I just never thought I'd be at a semi-final of a Grand Slam. Honestly, I thought my ship had sailed. Obviously, you know, I didn't go about things great earlier in my career and may have wasted that little window. But, you know, just um, I'm really proud of the way that I've just come back out here. Yeah, overnight he took down Christian Guerin in straight sets and he'll play his semi-final tomorrow against Rafael Nadal, who managed to beat Taylor Fritz in a stunning five-setter. Yeah, it was an incredible win by Kyrgios. It was straight sets, but they were very tough sets. He actually won the third one in a tie break and Christian Guerin hits the ball very hard and it was a a strange day for Kyrgios yesterday. The news broke that he'd been charged with the assault of his former partner and will face court in Canberra. And meanwhile, Isla Tomlanovic crashed out. She was at the same stage, hoping to make the semifinals, but unfortunately went down to world number 17, Alana Ribakina, in three sets. And an Australian cyclist won stage five of the Tour de France overnight. So this is a huge deal in the cycling world. Simon Clark won a very dramatic stage where a number of high-profile riders got caught in a pretty nasty crash. And only about a dozen or so Australians have achieved that honour in decades of Tour de France history. Yeah, so amazing to see an Australian win a stage of the Tour de France. It's in its first week. I'm watching the highlights most days. It's pretty pretty amazing that the crashes are hectic and um, looking forward to the mountain stages later on. Just before we get into our discussion on 1-3 Yarn, we got a bit of interesting feedback um, on our episode this week on uh, the changing face of religion, Uh, many millennials moving away from it. Kath says, I think this is good basically, Um, less brainwashed individuals means a better, more accepting society. I grew up Catholic but am proudly unreligious now, if that's a word. People can be spiritual but have no set religion. Free thinkers, love them. Love to hear from you on whatever you want to talk about via Instagram DM. So slide on in and um, yeah, we can read your messages here on the podcast. Right, so Rihanna Patrick, we're in the middle of NADOC week right now. What's it all about for you? 
look, some say that it's Black Christmas and the best time of the year. And while it is a celebration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, our people, who we are and what we're about, it's also a time of visibility for us. But we acknowledge that something like NAIDOC Week is embedded in protest and it comes from protests of those years gone by. So I guess it depends on who you talk to, Tom. But for me, it's definitely uh, a week where we're visible. And you look forward to it? I do. I do look forward to NAIDOC each year and uh, this NAIDOC even more so um, because where I live, they're finally having uh, a NAIDOC ball, which I can attend. So I'm very excited not having to jump on a plane and go where the national focus is, which I have done in the past. But it's just nice to be able to celebrate and be with the community that I see most days. Yeah, well, something else we want to put a bit of focus on is this new 1-3 yarn service, um, which sounds really interesting. Basically, it's lifeline specifically for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Yeah, it was launched by the Morrison government in April and was co-designed by the Peak Organisation for Indigenous Suicide Prevention, which is Gaia Dewey Australia. And Gaia Dewey means proud spirit. And along with Lifeline, uh, this is where Marjorie Anderson works. And she's their national program manager of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Crisis Support Team. Marjorie, it seems like this has been a long time coming, but why is a national service like this needed? Well, the suicide rate for Aboriginal people is very high. For example, between 70 and 80% of adolescent suicides are Aboriginal people, yet we're 3% of the population. So we really needed to do something about that. And there's lots of um, other mental health services, but they didn't have a crisis line that they could ring that was culturally safe. And having Aboriginal people on the other end of the line that understand you and understand your culture and understand the intergenerational trauma that you've suffered really helps Aboriginal people reach out to a line that is for them. What would sometimes go astray if an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person called the other mainstream lifeline number? Where where would sometimes it go wrong? Well, what would happen is they'd really have to explain about their background, their culture, their connection to community, their family dynamics, their responsibilities in community before they could get the help they needed. But when they ring 13 Yarn, people on the other end of the line understand that. So they don't have to go through all that before they get the help they need. What has been the response so far to this service um, since it was announced in April? What are you seeing? Well, it's been really positive. All the feedback has been very positive. Comments like, this is a long time coming. Why this should have been done decades ago. The Aboriginal community has been talking about it for decades. And just one comment I'll I'll, um, highlight is there was a woman in hospital and it was three o'clock in the morning. She had nobody to talk to and she was struggling to get through the night. So she rang 13 Yarn and she said, that the person on the other end of the line got her through the night. So it's there to help anybody and everybody and no problem's too small. So do you reckon it's saving lives already? I think so. I I absolutely think so. We um, predicted that we would get around 50 calls at this stage um, because it's only been going since March and we're getting between 70 and 100 a day. Wow. And what did the training involve? Um, I've actually done the Lifeline training quite recently and it's, it's highly involved. There's, um, 
a very detailed approach to the way you speak to people that you you really just focus on getting them to express how they're feeling about what's going on for them and and not to jump in with with anything that might distance them um, any of your own kind of background or or insights it really is about getting them to to talk how's the training different for uh the aboriginal and torres strait islander people you have working on one three yarn well, we used the lifeline training as a base and what we did was we put an Indigenous lens over that. We're on a journey of continuous improvement because this is an international first, so I've got nowhere to go to get best practice. We are best practice. So after the first lot of training, we got feedback from the crisis supporters and the mentors and the trainers and we've upgraded the training again. And we will continue to do that with feedback. But there's an Indigenous lens over it. You know, we speak differently, we react differently. So we made sure that that Indigenous lens was there over the training. But if anything, the training for the Aboriginal crisis supporters is more involved than the training that you do. Mm. Marjorie, I mean, what does a service like this mean, I guess, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who aren't living in cities and are in regional Australia? Well, when you're living in a small community, it's very difficult to get help if you want to remain confidential. People in those small communities can ring 13 yarn, it's confidential, it's culturally safe, and nobody needs to know that you've rung to get that help. So the confidentiality is huge for remote and regional communities. And when we designed the line, we co-designed the line with people from urban communities, regional communities and remote communities. We had people there from Stolen Generation. We had youth, we had elders, we had mental health professionals. All those people told us how the line should be. It was true co-design. I went in with a blank sheet of paper and said, right, I've got funding to deliver a line. What do you want it to look like? What do you want it to sound like? What do you want it to do? That's so interesting that you talk about people um, even more so than in other communities needing to be anonymous because a lot of those communities are so tight, which makes it difficult to speak up. And I know that sometimes there can be shame involved. Um, You also talked about needing to understand intergenerational trauma and I guess implicit in Rihanna's last question is that a lot of Indigenous people live in, in remote areas. What are the other things that make this different or other things you had to think about to really make sure this service was right for this audience? I worked very closely with the lived experience um, group that I had, a working group, and they said, look, we don't want it to sound clinical. We want it to sound welcoming. So it's a real conversational approach and the whole music is Indigenous music to make sure that the music's calming, the messages are calming and they're more approachable. And so this is, I guess, an example of a health service where the interface, um, the way it communicated wasn't tailored enough in its approach to really uh, meet the needs of Indigenous Australians. Do you think there are other areas in our health system potentially, I don't know, maybe emergency or or GPs or, or other mental health services where we maybe need to rethink in the same way we have with Lifeline? Absolutely, and that is occurring. I was at a conference last week and um, one of the things that I was really buoyed by is that 
Aboriginal people are getting involved in the design of hospitals. Any hospital that's really um, going through a new design, Aboriginal people are involved in that to make hospitals much better and much more welcoming for Aboriginal people. There's also some great work going on in remote communities. I was up in Alice Springs and there was a group of men up there who were senior lawnmakers in their area and they're doing things like modelling behaviours in the community that they want young people to take up. For example, showing emotion. You know, they're crying in the community and they're reaching out for help and they're saying that men that show emotion and reach out for help are the strong ones and making sure that the shame is being taken away from getting help when you need it. So there's some marvellous work going on out there and it's about time that this work occurred. You know, I'm really buoyed by the fact that these things are happening out there. Of course there could be more done but we've got to walk before we can run, don't we? Yeah, well, Marjorie, I was going to ask, you know, on saying that this is sort of the first step, what are those other services that maybe need to think about this that doesn't exist right now um, in, in terms of maybe following up of someone who's called and needs a particular type of service? Yeah, well, that's one of the things we're doing. We're, we're actually creating a referral manual and make sure that referrals include you know, like community healers that would never have been done before. And we want to make sure that we identify every avenue of assistance that these crisis supporters can get. Yeah, and from experience, I know that the referral side of Lifeline is one of the the really tricky things to get right because people can call in with any kind of problem. And so to be able to refer them to the right service in the right part of the country where they're calling from is really hard. So that feels like very valuable work, particularly with this community. Yes. That's one of the reasons why I've been travelling around the country and my staff have been travelling around the country to gather that information as well. We attended conferences in Alice Springs, um, Brisbane, Darwin, and talked to people who deliver these services and said, you need to get on our referral line and um, make sure that the community knows you're there and make sure that we can refer community appropriately. But it gets hard in remote areas where there aren't the services on the ground and it gets difficult. And that's when we can go to community healers or uh, other sources of assistance for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It doesn't necessarily have to be a mental health service as long as they're getting help from somewhere. That was Marjorie Anderson, and she's actually the voice you'll hear when you call 13YARN, which is 139276. Uh, She works for Lifeline. And Rihanna, sounds like they're already getting a lot of calls and it's already making an impact. Yeah, and I think that's good to see because I think for a long time we've needed a national helpline that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders can ring. And I think anything that helps our social and emotional well-being is a step in the right direction. But as Marjorie mentioned there, this is only part of that step. There's a lot more that needs to happen, particularly in those follow-up services and making sure that they're culturally sensitive and appropriate for my own community, you know, and for other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So while it's kind of weird to say that I'm excited that this exists, I'm just glad that uh, 13 Yarn now does. Tomorrow on The Briefing, a question a lot of people are asking now, particularly uh, people whose houses have been flooded, 
what does it have to do with climate change? How much of a factor is it in the floods we've been experiencing in Australia in the last six months? Listener.